morning. All right, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Our focus this morning is going to be on verses 24 through 27, but we're going to start in verse 20. The title to our message this morning is The Resurrection and the Birth of a Kingdom. And as you are turning there, please remember the promise that God holds out to us this morning, the, that the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So as we call on God in truth this morning, know that the Lord is near us. Starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, as we just heard Pastor Paul read from Matthew 14 that as your son went to the land across the sea. And all who were sick and needy came to your son and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. Lord, we pray this morning that you would avail yourself to us, that we might touch the fringe of your garment, Lord. And we know that you will do so much more. Because we are no longer your, your servants, but we are your friends. And you are the best of all friends since you laid down your life for us. We hold to the promise of God this morning that if God did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all other things? So we know and are confident that you will visit with us this morning through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated. Hey, Bridget, can I get a water? So recall the flow of the argument here. Um, Paul is arguing for the resurrection of the dead. There were some in Corinth who had denied that the dead were raised to life. And remember, they weren't denying an afterlife. They were simply denying a physical afterlife. They had bought into the error of Gnosticism, which taught that the spiritual world is good and the physical world is bad. And so they believed that to be reunited to their physical bodies after death would be to be enslaved to the material world all over again. So they denied the resurrection. And Paul, in our previous verses, in verses 12 through 19, he showed seven ruinous consequences that follow 
if Christ isn't raised, if the dead aren't raised. Thank you. Now, Paul is going to return to this negative way of arguing in verses 29 through 34. But Paul isn't all negative. Um, in, the, in these middle verses that we're reading today, he turns to the glorious realities of Christ's resurrection. So last time in verses 20 through 23, we saw that Christ is our federal head, the second Adam. Just as God made the first Adam to be the representation of the old creation so that when Adam sinned, we sinned in him. Likewise, Christ is the representative head of the new creation so that when Christ rose, it guaranteed our resurrection. He rose for us. Now we will also be raised. So that's the first glorious reality of Christ's resurrection, the, the guarantee of individual salvation for all who believe. But Paul is just warming up. That, that's just like the, the prelude. In verses 24 through 27, we see the second glorious reality of Christ's resurrection, namely the transformation of the whole world. Paul is continuing to make this parallel between the first Adam and the second Adam, who is Christ. Remember that Paul, uh, that God commissioned Adam to bring the earth under the dominion of God. That was the cultural mandate in Genesis 1.28. But Adam failed. He failed because he fell into sin. But beloved, that's why Christ came into the world. He came into the world as the second Adam to fulfill where Adam failed. As Keith Matheson puts it here, one of the primary responsibilities of the last Adam, Christ, will be to fulfill this mandate by exercising dominion over all of creation. Don't you know that's why we sing that song every Christmas? Uh, we sing joy to the world. One of the lines in that song is that he came to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found. Jesus didn't come to earth merely to save individual souls. As glorious as that is. He came to transform the world. The whole world. From shore to shore. That, that's, isn't that why we often say that the gospel changes everything? But I, but I wonder if we actually believe that it changes everything. I mean, we know it changes individuals and yeah, it changes the church, but does it change the world? And if your answer to that is no, then you shouldn't say the gospel changes everything. When Jesus rose from the dead, it guaranteed the transformation of the world. Why? Because at his resurrection, he was coronated king. He was made king. And we read in Daniel 7, 14, he was made king. God delivered all the kingdoms of this world into his hands so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. So that brings us to our big idea this morning. At the resurrection, a new kingdom was born in which Christ is king and he will reign until 
the world comes under his dominion. So let's look first of all at our doctrine this morning. Look with me at our passage. Remember, last time Paul told us in verse 23 that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits, that the full harvest will not come until his second coming. Now look what he says in verse 24. Then comes the end. Then comes the end. For the rest of chapter 15, Paul is talking about eschatology. Eschatos uh, means last. Logos means end. So eschatology is a word about the end or the study of last things. And there are four basic views when it comes to eschatology. The first view is called historic premillennialism. The second view is dispensational premillennialism. The third view is amillennialism. And the fourth view is postmillennialism. And those prefixes, pre, ah, and post, simply indicate the relationship between the second coming of Christ and the millennium, um, called the millennium from Revelation chapter 20. So let's go through each one of these briefly. Premillennialism, um, both of the historic and the dispensational flavor, say that Christ's second coming will take place pre or before the millennial kingdom. And because they believe that this world, therefore, is still under the control of Satan right now, they have a very pessimistic view about world history. John MacArthur, a, a premillennial brother, uh, has said very recently, because of his eschatology, he says, we lose here. We do not win. So that's premillennialism. Amillennialism says that we are, in fact, living in Christ's kingdom. When, when Christ rose, he was anointed king, so his kingdom's right now. Yet in this present age, righteousness will not ultimately prevail in history because there's this parallel growth between good and evil. Anthony Hokema, an amillennial brother, said, quote, Satan's kingdom, if we may call it that, will continue to exist and grow as long as God's kingdom grows until Christ comes again. So all millennialists are typically pessimistic about how history will play out, although they, like premillennialists, agree that in the end Christ will have total and absolute victory. Thirdly, postmillennialism says that Christ's second coming will take place after or post-millennium. B.B. Warfield, a post-millennial brother, said, quote, the earth, the whole world, must be won to Christ before he comes, and that is precisely this conquest of it that he is accomplishing between his first and second coming. Now, post-millennialism does not believe that Everybody in the world will become a Christian before his second coming. Uh, Postmillennialism doesn't teach universalism or, or liberalism. Rather, it's a, it asserts 
that the gospel will actually succeed, that it will have worldwide success in this age so that the wheat plants, believers, will far outnumber the tare plants, the unbelievers. Isaiah 11, 9. For the the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Although premillennialism and amillennialism are vastly different from one another, they are generally pessimistic about the advance of Christ's kingdom in history. Postmillennialism, on the other hand, is very optimistic about the advance and success of Christ's kingdom. Now, there are faithful brothers and sisters who hold to each one of these positions. Uh, historic premillennial believers include men like Irenaeus, Tertullian, Charles Spurgeon, John Piper, Wayne Grudem. Dispensational premillennial believers include men like John Nelson Darby, Charles Ryrie, J. Vernon McGee, Norm Geisler, John MacArthur. All millennial believers include men like Abraham Kuyper, Herman Bavinck, J. J. Adams, Louis Burkhoff, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. And postmillennial believers include men like Athanasius, John Owens, John, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, and R.C. Sproul. Now, the men that I've just listed in all four of these camps are men whose sincerity and loyalty to the evangelical faith cannot be in doubt for a moment. Um, All these men believe that the Bible is the word of God, that it's inspired by God, that it carries the full authority of God. All these men believe that Jesus will return physically and personally and bring all the elect to himself. They all agree on the authority of God the Bible and the Christian life and the end of the Christian life, namely the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of God and his angels forever. They simply disagree with how history will play out between now and then. So eschatology is truly a secondary issue where where many faithful, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians have disagreed upon. Now that being said, I want you to know where I'm coming from. Uh, three years ago, I preached a message in Second Peter uh, where I advocated an all-millennial position. Now, I've since changed my views to a post-millennial perspective. And I haven't done that lightly or rashly. Um, I've read several books on um, many of the different perspectives, but I'm ultimately convinced by the biblical data. Um, Many pastors and theologians change their views on things the more, they change, uh, the more that they study Scripture. So if my shifting of positions concerns you, then let me offer you two um, quick comforts. Number one, my eschatology fits well within the standards of the Westminster Confession of Faith. In fact, I would point out that the majority view of the Puritans who wrote the confession are, in fact, post-mill. Secondly, um, We have a plurality of elders here, which means that I do not run the show. Um, If I change my views on anything that struck at the vitals of the Christian faith, our elders, by the grace of God, would remove me. Now, having said that, um, the views uh, specifically on postmillennialism doesn't necessarily represent every elder that we have on, on our board, but... 
all the elders unanimously agreed that I should teach what I believe the scriptures are saying. So over the next several weeks, please email me questions. I would love to field them. Um, I would love to answer them and perhaps even incorporate them in a sermon. Um, This is but a, a mere introductory sermon on this subject matter. It is simply not possible to say everything that I would want to say this morning. But I hope to unpack these precious truths in the following weeks. So, see, I'm, I'm on track for at least interpreting a semicolon this morning. Um, let's look back at our text. Verse, verse 23, remember, ends by saying that we will be raised at Christ's second coming. And then immediately, verse 24 says, then comes the end. Now, let's stop right there. Here's... Um, why I did that whole intro on eschatology. Our pre-millennial brothers place a large gap of time, 1,000 years to be exact, between the end of verse 23 and the beginning of verse 24. End of verse 23, second coming, they insert 1,000 years, and then verse 24, then the end comes. Um, So once Christ returns, they say, then the, the dead in Christ will be raised and Jesus will then rule and reign physically for a thousand years and then the end of time comes. During this millennial period, they say Christ is defeating all of his enemies. Verse 24, then the end comes when he will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. At that time, the resurrection of the wicked will take place, all are judged, and then God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, all of our premillennial brethren, both historic and dispensational, interpret the end in verse 24 like this because they don't see that Jesus is king in this present age. So I'm advocating this morning that Jesus is king because of the resurrection. They say, no, 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 Jesus is not king yet. That's delayed until his second coming. And that betrays two fundamental problems with premillennialism. The first problem is that premillennialism uh, supposes three or four different resurrections. Three or four different resurrections. Lorraine Botner counts them this way. Uh, the resurrection of the righteous dead at the rapture. That's one resurrection. A resurrection of the martyrs who died during the great tribulation. That's a second resurrection. A resurrection of um, the wicked who died um, at the end of the millennium. That's the third resurrection. And then a resurrection of the righteous who died during the millennium. That's four resurrections. Now, what's the problem with multiple resurrections in the scheme of redemptive history? Well, the New Testament only teaches that there's one final resurrection and that the righteous and the wicked are raised at the exact same time. In John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said this. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, one period of time, when all, both the good and the bad, All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So one time, 
one resurrection for all people. And many other passages could be cited. But the second and most fundamental problem with the premillennial interpretation is that it denies that Jesus Christ is king right now. He won't be king, they say, until the second coming. Until then, Satan is still the king of this world. He's still the ruler of this world. He's still the prince of this world. Now, why is that a problem? Because at the resurrection, and this is Paul's theology here, at the resurrection, Jesus was made king. And that brings us to our doctrine this morning. At the resurrection, a kingdom was born in which Christ is king. And he will reign in this kingdom until the world comes under his dominion. And I want to demonstrate this with only two proofs this morning. Please, first of all, turn with me to Acts 2. The first proof is that Jesus was declared king at Pentecost. Proof number one, Jesus was declared king at Pentecost. Now, this is Peter's first sermon And in this sermon, he's simply explaining why there's this massive outpouring of the Spirit. Remember, these men started speaking in tongues. And his answer to that question is, well, the reason why this Spirit is being outpoured is because Jesus was raised from the dead, and he's exercising his authority as the king at the right hand of God. Look at verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord, the Lord who's sitting now at the right hand of the Father, and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So we could put these verses into a very simple syllogism. Premise number one. The descendant of David who rose from the dead would be king at God's right hand. Premise number two, Jesus is the descendant of David who rose from the dead. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus is the king at God's right hand. And, and, and Peter is claiming that, that Jesus is not king at some future time, but that he's king right now. And he trots out proof for his kingdom. By pointing to the fact that Jesus is pouring out his spirit, thus defeating his enemies. 
Remember who this crowd is that is listening to Peter preach. These were the very ones that were yelling, crucify him just 40 days earlier. And now these same enemies of Christ are now repenting of their sin and they're turning to belief in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is fulfilling this this prophecy in Psalm 110, which Peter quotes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's bringing his enemies in to the kingdom. Proof number two. Jesus was declared king in Psalm chapter two. Jesus was declared king in Psalm chapter two. Before you turn there, Turn quickly to Acts chapter 13. Paul here is preaching to the Jews in Antioch. So they were Jewish. uh, They they belonged to Judaism. They, They hadn't yet become Christians. And Paul is preaching to them the whole Old Testament in just a few verses. And the punchline at the end of his sermon is the resurrection of Christ, showing that he really is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. Look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, Today, I have begotten you. So you may be asking, well, how does that prove that Jesus is king, that that Paul is quoting the second psalm? Well, let's turn now to the second psalm. Psalm chapter 2. Starting in verse 6, David says, through the inspiration of the Spirit, as for me, now he's speaking in the voice of God here, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's what Paul quoted back in Acts 13. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, as John Jefferson Davis says here, quote, according to Paul, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you, has been fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. That's why Paul quoted it. So, which means that the resurrected Christ here in verse 7 is the king in verse 6. He now has all authority And all he has to do is ask the Father. That's what verse 8 says. And the Father will give him the nations as his heritage. So do we have any evidence in Scripture that the Son actually asked the Father for the nations? Yes, we do. Absolutely we do. This is is, um, shown in the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, on the basis of that authority to make disciples of all nations. Jesus, as the newly coronated king, sends out his church to all the earth to make disciples. 
to bring his inheritance in through the preaching of the gospel. And many more places could be shown. I'm just touching the tip of the iceberg here. But let's return to our passage. Remember what I had said, that our pre-millennial brothers insert a 1,000-year gap between verse 23 and verse 24. So let's read it again. Starting in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his second coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Stop. The end here in verse 24 is not a different day than the second coming in verse 23. Jesus says this over and over again in the New Testament. In John 6, 39, he says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, that I will raise it up on the last day. So Paul, what Paul is communicating here in verse 23 and 24 is that when the dead are raised, verse 23, then the end has come, verse 24. It's the same day. It's the same day. And on that day, then Christ will deliver the kingdom up to his father after destroying every rule and authority and power. So clearly in the mind of Paul, Christ is king now. Verse 24, he possesses a kingdom now. Verse 25, he is reigning now. Verse 27, God has put all things under his feet now. This is where post-millennialists and all-millennialists absolutely agree. So that's our doctrine. That at the resurrection, a new kingdom was born, Christ's, and he will reign until he brings the world under his dominion. Now, I understand that I haven't demonstrated that last part yet. I'll have to wait for future weeks. But this week is absolutely foundational. To have an accurate eschatology, we have to see that Christ is king in this age. So let's look then to our duty. And we just have two of them. First of all, we have to consider what kind of kingdom Jesus has. What kind of kingdom Jesus has. When I was studying this, um, it struck me very odd that Jesus was made king only after his resurrection. Because I thought to myself, wait a second, isn't Jesus, who is God from God, light from light, very God of very God, isn't he already king over all things long before he even came into the world? Yes. So it's important that we distinguish between three types of kingdoms, okay? Um, first of all, the universal kingdom, the universal kingdom of God. This is God's absolute rule over the cosmos, his unmitigated rule. This is the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar confessed when he came to the Lord in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. He says his kingdom endures from generation to generation, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. 
So if we consider the Son of God in respect to this kingdom, this universal kingdom, then we say absolutely Jesus has always been king. He will always be king. But we have to consider the second kingdom, which is the messianic kingdom. The messianic kingdom is what Jesus received as God-man upon his resurrection and ascension. This is the kingdom he received as the mediator. Psalm 110, again, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. When did that take place? Peter says at the resurrection. This is the kingdom, this messianic kingdom. This is the kingdom that both John the Baptist and Jesus preached several times. Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 4, 17. So the messianic kingdom is found entirely between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. That's why in verse 24 of our passage, Paul says that um, when Christ returns, when the end comes, he'll then deliver this kingdom, the messianic kingdom, up to his father after he has destroyed every rule and authority and power. Hodge says here, quote, when that is done, then he will no longer reign over the universe as mediator, but only as God, while his headship over his people is to continue forever. Make sense? Okay, one more kingdom. Um, the third kingdom is the consummate kingdom. The consummate kingdom. This is the kingdom that comes after the final judgment. It's our everlasting state where all of the seed of the serpent is cast into the lake of fire and all of God's elect are ushered into the, his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, in light of all the three of these types of kingdoms, it's incumbent upon, upon us when we're studying the scripture to ask which kingdom is being talked about right now. Is this the universal kingdom or the messianic kingdom or the, or the consummate kingdom? Because I would submit to you that this is where there's disagreement between postmillennialism and amillennialism. Um, I would submit to you that many of the glorious visions that we see in the Old Testament of the kingdom do not belong to the future kingdom, but belong to the messianic kingdom in this age. More on that in weeks to come. And that brings us to our second duty, which is this, that we... We must rebuke ourselves, um, not for holding to one particular uh, eschatology or not, but because there is a prevailing pessimism today within evangelicalism when it comes um, to Jesus' kingdom, and particularly to Jesus' kingdom in this age. Um, we don't believe we don't believe that Jesus is king right now, at least functionally. Um, we, we do if perhaps in theory, but in practice, in our anxiety, in our worry, in the doom and gloom that we are, are pressing upon ourselves, we act as if Satan is king in the world today. The church today is not the same church as the church of the reformers. 
The church of the reformers, um, they didn't merely believe that Jesus was king over the individual or merely king over the church, but they believed that he was king over the nations. They didn't fret when they saw national calamities or wars or inflation or wicked politicians. They didn't throw up their hands when they suffered defeat or persecution. I'm not saying that they were supermen. I didn't, I'm not saying that they, they didn't have times of weakness. What I'm saying is that they had an underlying confidence that Jesus sat on the throne of this universe. They, and they had far more reason to be filled with doom and gloom that, than we. When was the last time you saw somebody burned at the stake? It was commonplace in their days. Why did they persevere? Why did they have such this overriding confidence? Because they didn't formulate their eschatology by what they saw in the world. They didn't hold their newspaper up and say, oh, look how bad it is in the world. I can't wait till Jesus takes control. That wasn't their view. No, when calamity came upon the nation, because they had calamity just like we have calamity. But when, these, when this calamity came, they believed that it was Jesus exercising his authority and control over the world. In fact, Luther once said, quote, that if he did not see those calamities upon the world, he would not believe that Christ had come forth into the world. That's how God extends the rule of Christ over the nations. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of the nations shall come. Christ, who is the desire of the nations, comes forth precisely through this shaking that's happening. And how many of us are, are responding in despair and indifference and pessimism when the world is not going the way that we think it ought to go? Loved ones, if that's you, then rebuke yourself. Don't you see how kind King Jesus is when he shakes the nations? It's an infinitely kind thing to do. Why is Jesus shaking the nations? Why is he shaking America? Why is he shaking our world? He's shaking the world to show the world that the things that they have put their trust in and their hope in are worthless. By shaking the world, King Jesus is showing the world that they will never find peace. They will never find rest outside of him. As John Owens has said, Christ has laid his hand upon the nests of the nations and he has fitted it wings on all their treasures and hath written vanity and uncertainty upon them and they fly away. Jesus is shaking the nation so that men and women would turn to him and rest in him. He's shaking those things that have been made in order that those things that cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews 12, 27. Love it. 
because the world is shaking, that's no reason to be pessimistic about how this age is going to end. God declared to Jesus on his ascension in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, to you has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve you. In Daniel chapter 2, the, that rock that struck the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that statue representing all the world kingdoms, that rock God promised would grow and grow and grow and turn into a great mountain that would fill the whole earth. Messianic kingdom. Daniel 2.44 says that the God of heaven will set up that kingdom and it shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Don't you at least want that to be true in this age? I mean, even if you're on the fence, even if you're on the fence on this, don't you... Hope that that's true. That his blessings will come as far as the curse is found. In history, everybody agrees. Everybody agrees that Christ wins ultimately. But would it surprise you if the gospel was better than you thought it was? And that he actually succeeds in history? Would that surprise you, that God is that good? Let's look at our delight. For the next few weeks, we're going to dive, hopefully, deep into this. Um, I, I so want to share the burden of my heart that I've been feeling and experiencing these last few weeks. I want you to have the same joy and hope that I have. It's important, though, to understand why God gives prophecy. Why does God give us the doctrine of eschatology? The chief purpose of prophecy is not to give us a detailed chronology of the future. That's, that's not the purpose of, of eschatology. And that's where so many go wrong in their study. The study of end times is not merely to inform us of things that are going to happen in the future. That's secondary. The primary purpose of prophecy is to create faith and hope and confidence in our God. Jesus said in John 14, 29, I have told you now before it happens so that you will believe. I've given you a glimpse of the future so that you will have hope and confidence and believe. How powerful is faith? I'm, I'm convinced that the biggest problem with Christians today, including myself, is simply unbelief. If we actually believe the promises that are found in Scripture, we would live up here. John says that, um, this is the, the victory that overcomes the world, even your faith. Faith and hope are, are the most powerful things that a Christian has in this world. You know, there was a hospital study done on patients and their life expectancy. The study came to the conclusion that there was a strong correlation 
between life expectancy and future-oriented thinking. The man who had hope, who looked ahead with expectation, was far more likely to live than the one who was trapped in the pessimism of his daily routine. Those without a future in mind had no future as a rule. How are you viewing the end of time? Don't settle for theoretical notions in your head that Christ is king. Beloved, bring those truths down to your heart. Put them before your eyes. Bury them in your spirit. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. John Owen says here, believe, believe that the enemies of Christ shall be made his footstool. Believe that all the nations shall be his inheritance, that he shall gloriously reign from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. These promises belong to his kingdom now. As John Jefferson Davis says, quote, the period between the two advents, the first coming and the second coming, is the period of Christ's victorious kingship. And when he comes again, it is not to institute his kingdom, but to lay it at the Father's feet. If you live in the faith of these things, you will experience the sweetness of them before they ever come to pass. I mean, isn't that the whole ending of Hebrews chapter 11? That by faith, these people were able to overcome kingdoms. By faith, they were able to be sawn in half. By faith, they were able to endure the sword. By faith, they were able to go through the wilderness Faith in the king is what we confess in our standards, loved ones. Shorter Catechism, question 26 says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Listen to what we confess. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Consider that truth. If you are a believer, then King Jesus has already defeated your greatest enemy. When he was crucified for your sin, sin was defeated for you. Hell was defeated for you. That record of debt that stood against you, God set aside and he nailed it to his son on the cross. And don't you see that that is a pledge of greater things to come? Jesus, let me ask it. Did Jesus come into the world to simply be your king? To simply become the church's king? Or did he come into the world to be king over every tribe and tongue and nation? Did he not come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found? So let me conclude here with a challenge by Keith Matheson. He says this. When God promised to give Abraham a son, everything that his eyes could see told him that he would never have a son. Sarah laughed at the promise. 
Yet Abraham believed God and God gave him a son. God has promised the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Matthew 16, 18. That all the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. That all the families of the nations will worship before him. Psalm twenty two twenty seven. 27. Shall we, like Sarah, laugh at the apparently unrealistic nature of that promise? Oh God, you could never do that. Or shall we, like Abraham, believe the promise of God? Here's the promise in our passage. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Let's pray.